0: We're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church for unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. We see these seven different signs from Jesus, but also these seven different statements where Jesus says, I am. We said last time, these I am statements are Jesus' self-portraits to us telling us who he is and what he came to do. This I am Satan we'll be looking at today in John 14. It's from verse six where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is one of the most important sentences that Jesus says in his earthly life and ministry. But in our day, for those who do not follow Jesus, this is one of the sentences they despise the most that came out of Jesus' mouth. It's a great text for Mother's Day, right? One of my favorite church fathers who I quote often is the African church father, Augustine. Probably the quote I have shared the most through the years from Augustine. He said, if you pick and choose what you believe in the gospels, it's not the gospel you believe in but yourself. If you pick and choose what you believe in the gospels, it's not the gospel you believe in, but yourself. Many people in our day, and over the last 2,000 years, this isn't a new thing, like to pick and choose who they want Jesus to be. The first I am statement is in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Some of you growing up may have had moms that would cut the crust off of your bread for you, for your sandwiches, just leave parts you like to eat. I think many people like to do that with Jesus, right? With the bread of life. They like to cut off the things they don't like, digest just the things they like. And people who like to cut things out of Jesus' mouth almost always like to cut this sentence out. But as we said last time, the issue really isn't about whether you like Jesus' teaching the issue is whether what Jesus is actually saying about himself is true. Is Jesus really what he's claiming to be here in John 14? Is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Is he really ultimate reality? As we looked at last time for John 11, has he really been raised from the dead? Does he really had the power over death? One of our biggest problems is that we all want to call the shots. We don't want to view ourselves as being in need of anyone else to save us. We all wanna be able to say like Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest, right? And we got a number of millennials in this room. Many of us grew up with our own I am statement from Nelly, right? I am number one, right? We want to be the best and greatest. We don't want anyone else filling that role. We want to be the center of the universe. This is why Tim Keller says, we want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. And since we want to be the best, it often annoys us when other people talk about how great they are, how important they are. But even if you think that Nellie is amazing and Muhammad Ali is the goat, I guarantee you nobody wants to be around somebody that's always talking about how great they are. So why do Christians think it's not only okay, but right for Jesus to speak this way? It's annoying for other people to speak this way, but why do we think it's not only okay, but right, righteous for Jesus to speak this way about himself? One of the things we'll see in John 14 is that Jesus' claim here is not only that he is superior. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That is a claim of superiority. That's not all he says. It's also one of exclusivity. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Many people, especially young people I talk to that have objections about Christianity, this is often the one at the top or near the top of their list, that Jesus' claims are just too exclusive. I was taking my oldest son to a baseball game yesterday morning. Almost all the way there, on the way to Avondale Park, we were behind a car that had a Coexist sticker Which again, if you're familiar with those, it has all these different signs, symbols from different religions. The call is that we should peacefully coexist together, which again, in one sense, we could say amen to, right? We should peacefully, as Christians, coexist with people that have different beliefs than our own. This is the great contribution of Baptists to American life is religious freedom for all people. But what's often behind that bumper sticker it's not just a call for peace, but it's really a looking down on any kind of exclusive claims within religion. A problem with anybody saying, hey, we're right and they're wrong. And a popular objection that I've heard from many of my skeptical friends to the Christian faith is that exclusive religion is often used for so much evil in the world. If we're honest, there is truth to that concern, Right? Exclusive religious claims have led people to being hateful and oppressive towards others, even towards violence. But, a historian, Alison McGrath, has pointed out an irony here. He says, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believe that religion caused intolerance and violence. He points to nations that try to outlaw religion, like the Soviet Union and China, and people that try to control it, like Nazi Germany, and demonstrating how non-religious dictators killed more than 170 million people. Upward to maybe 360 million, but at the lowest, 170 million people in the 20th century. Popular atheists, I don't know if you spent much time. I've uh, tried to know what popular atheists in our day are talking about. One of those guys who writes on a popular level is a guy named Sam Harris. In his book, The End of Faith, he said, Faith and religion are the most prolific source of violence in our history. This claim is made by atheists all the time. He said, Religion is the number one cause of war and violence in history. These are things we hear, but there's a three volume work, The Encyclopedia of Wars, that chronicles 1,763 wars that have been waged over the course of human history. Do you know how many of those were religious wars? 123. Less than 7% of all wars. Do, through history, have been religious wars. Half of those have been Islamic wars. So it's clear that outlawing religion and exclusive religion isn't the way to end violence and war. But also, again, we can take ownership that religion has often played as a part of the problem. It has led to wickedness, things that we see as evil. So what is the solution? Well, we're gonna come back more to the ultimate solution, but I'll give you a preview, the answer already that we'll be working out the rest of our time. The answer to all these problems is Jesus of Nazareth. The Sunday school answer is the right answer today. Jesus is the answer. So let's look at this passage before us, look more deeply into who Jesus is and who he's claiming to be, before we see how he is the answer to all of the problems that plague us in this broken world. To examine who Jesus is, let's go to the upper room in John 14. People's last words, their farewell addresses to people are normally important, right? People normally don't waste their last words. Jesus didn't waste any of his words, especially his last ones. Here in this section of John from chapter 13 to 16, this is often called Jesus' final discourse to his disciples before he's crucified. So, John 13 through 16, we see Jesus teaching his disciples here in this final discourse. In John 17, we see Jesus praying for his disciples. In John 19, we see Jesus going out and dying for his disciples. But Jesus begins chapter 14 with these words in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus to his disciples in this upper room says, let not your hearts be troubled. I think Jesus' word here pointing out the troubled nature of the disciples shows us this is a pretty serious and somber upper room right now, which is understandable. Jesus, their leader, the one whom they left everything for, has just told them in chapter 13 that he's gonna be leaving them, that he's going away from them. He's also just dropped a bomb on this crew that's been palling around together for three years that one of them is about to betray him. But after diagnosing their trouble, Jesus gives them the solution in verse one. Look at that. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. A reason, not the only reason, But a reason why we can get so anxious and troubled in this world is that we fail to believe the things that we claim to be true as Christians. Often our anxiety comes back to us forgetting that God is God and that God is good, and that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus calls his disciples here to trust him, to believe in God, believe also in me. He, again, he's about to once again show himself to be the God man. Jesus begins to explain this place where he is going. He's just told him in chapter 13 he's going, and verse 2 of chapter 14 he tells him about this place where he's going. Look at verse 2. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Normally, we see Peter being the one that is quick to open his mouth and put his foot in his mouth, that just doesn't get it. But here, it's actually old Thomas who responds who shows that he doesn't get the point that Jesus is making here, or at least, again, he's the one that's brave enough to speak up and say that he doesn't get it. Look at verse five. Thomas said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas doesn't know it yet, but Thomas is throwing an alley-oop here for Jesus for his sixth I am statement. Look at verse six with me. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've highlighted through each one of these I am statements. This is a reference back to Exodus chapter three, when God is revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, who shall I say sent me? the Lord responds, I am. Tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And the way the Septuagint translates Exodus 3.14 is, I am that which is. I am that which is. Jesus is claiming to be ultimate reality here. Jesus claiming, I am that which is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So back to our original question. Why is it not only okay, but right for Jesus to speak this way? It all comes down to whether Jesus is telling us the truth or not. If Jesus really is who he says he is, the one who created us and gave us life, who defeated death, the only one who can satisfy our souls, if he really is ultimate reality, the only way we can have eternal life, if all that's true, then our souls would shrivel without him the way that our bodies would shrivel without food. If we accept that Jesus is who he says he is, this exclusive claim isn't narrow-minded, it's actually his gracious revelation of himself to us. Every other major world religion leader identified as a prophet or a sage that was pointing us how to get to God or how to get to ultimate reality. Again, Mohammed claims to be a prophet Buddha is one of the only world religion leaders who people actually thought was more than a man. People actually came to Buddha and bowed down before him to worship him as a god. But Buddha says, don't worship me, I'm not God. Buddha says, follow my dharma, follow my teaching, but don't worship me. You know what happens when people came and bowed before Jesus? He stood there and received it. He received the worship. Jesus' claims are superior to all other world religion leaders. Jesus claims to be God who has come to save you. He claims to be ultimate reality. And if Jesus is wrong about who he is, then Jesus wouldn't be superior to the other world religious leaders. In C.S. Lewis' properly? famously said that Jesus would either be a liar, someone who's lying through his teeth, deceiving people, or a lunatic, right? He would be out of his mind making these kind of claims. But if Jesus is who he said he is, if he really is Lord, if he is the God man, then he has to be superior because his claim is superior. If you believe that Jesus is the resurrected son of God, you have to believe his way is the superior way. All other world religious leaders, all they can say now was, I was, because they're not around anymore, right? But Jesus can still say, I am, in the present tense, because he is the one who's defeated death. As we saw last time, he is the resurrection and the life. Again, Tim Keller is so helpful here. This is what Keller says. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that your way to think about all religions, namely that they are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. So again, every approach to religion is exclusive. We all have an authority. For Christians, our authority is the Bible, because it points us to Jesus, our ultimate authority, our Lord. For most non-Christian, skeptical folks I talk to, their authority seems to be either the scientific method or their reason or experience. Those things can be authorities for Christians, but not our ultimate authority. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this. So I uh, have a section of my notes here uh, all about... Authority and circular reasoning and different things and how every religion and approach to it goes that direction, probably four of you are actually interested in that. And so if if you're interested in knowing more about that, I would love to talk to you. If those are the conversations you're having with people, would love to have those with you and equip you in that. But I'm gonna skip over that to ask maybe questions that more people are asking and, and dealing with. But the Bible is our authority as Christians. Historically, The scriptures have been the authority of Christians, and the Bible claims to be written by many men over thousands of years, all ultimately pointing to one man, the anointed one, the Messiah, who's the only hope for sinners to be made right with a holy God. But here in John chapter 14, Jesus is claiming to be that one. He's claiming to be that anointed one, that Messiah. In John chapter 5, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, his, again, great opponents, the religious leaders in his day, that if you miss me, then you miss the point of the Bible. You miss the point of the scriptures. If you miss me, you miss everything. And according to Jesus here, you only miss the point of the scriptures. You miss ultimate reality, what life is all about. Remember what we saw in Colossians chapter 1, just finished Colossians last week? Colossians 1 says that all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus, Again, he is ultimate reality. This is what Christians have always believed. Thomas' question here is focusing on knowing the way that Jesus is talking about, of where he's going, on the way. And this is the focus of Jesus' response here. The way could also be translated here, this sense, I am the true and living way. Truth and life, Really, are just role players here in that this sentence. Kind of like I was the little white boy role player on the bench in high school. These are just role players there to support that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to God, precisely because he is the truth of God, as we saw in John chapter 1, verse 14. He is the life of God, we saw in John chapter 1, verse 4. But Jesus doesn't just simply blaze a trail, commanding others to follow the same path that he's just knocked down with his machete. But Jesus is saying he is the way. He's not just making a way. He is the way. If you claim to speak your truth in our day, people will normally applaud you. But Jesus here isn't just speaking his truth or even just the truth of God. He is claiming to be the truth of God. Jesus is truth personified. Again, this is a theme we see throughout the New Testament about Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is grace personified, love personified, glory personified. John says that Jesus is light personified, life, truth. If you turn those things into a person, you have Jesus. But here, Jesus is also the way personified. Tony Evans, a pastor commenting on this, he says, Thomas misunderstood Jesus because he didn't understand that the way isn't a path, but a person. And Jesus isn't just talking about a path here. He's talking about himself. He is the way. If you want to get to the Father, you must come through the Son. You must come through Jesus. We saw this in John chapter 10. Again, Jesus is the door, right? He's the way in and out. Jesus couldn't be more clear here. Jesus would be lying to us and not loving us well if he didn't tell us who he really is. But he makes himself so clear here. It's not loving to withhold the light from someone who is living in darkness. It's not loving to withhold the remedy from someone who is dying. Rebecca McLaughlin has a great book. Would encourage all of you to read it confronting Christianity, 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. One of the things that she says in this book is when questions of truth carry life and death consequences, persuasion is an act of love. The stakes of what Jesus is saying could not be any higher. It has not only ramifications for this life, but also for the life to come. Jesus in love speaks the truth to us about himself. Again, as application, we as his people must do the same. Some of other Jesus' last words before he returned to his father was "The Great Commission," right? We must also be willing to share." But when we look around and think about the problems in our world, we think about the problem, problems in our lives. I think that there's a tendency within us to get out a microscope and just focus in on our problem or a particular problem in the world. And when we get out the microscope and just laser focus on one problem, we often don't have specific answers to why. And I think we need to be really careful about proclaiming declarations of why a specific thing is happening in someone's life. The scriptures tell us, Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. But things he's revealed, again, we have a responsibility to believe and to pass along to our children. But instead of just getting out the microscope and focusing on one problem in the world or in our own story, if we step out, if we zoom out, If we look at the big picture, I think we can say with confidence that Jesus is the ultimate answer for all the ultimate problems we face as humans in this broken world. Sinners are lost, but Jesus is the way, right? He is the way to the Father's house where everything's going to be made right again. Sinners are ignorant, but Jesus is the truth. He's the ultimate truth about the Father, Sinners are spiritually dead, the scriptures tell us, but Jesus is the life, and he shares that life with all who turn from their sin and trust in him. Which brings us to a common and key question. So why is there only one way? Why only one way to God? Why not many paths? As many have said before, helpfully, that's really the wrong question. The question should not be, why is there only one way? But if we understand ourselves as sinners, if we understand God's holiness, the right question is, why anyway? Why has God made any way for sinners like us to be made right with him? Paul tells us in Romans 3 that we were made to be the glory of God as God's image bearers, to reflect his glory, but we have all sinned and fallen short of that glory. We've committed cosmic treason against the king of the universe. We sin against an infinitely holy God, and because of that, our sin, we as sinners deserve his infinite justice. We've all taken God's good gifts that he has given to us as creation, and we've worshiped those gifts rather than the creator of those gifts, the giver of those gifts. There's none who does good. There's no innocent man on the island. Past infancy, and maybe besides those who are mentally disabled from thinking through these things, Paul says in Romans 1 that we've all suppressed God's truth with a lie. Again, there's a few that are not in that category, but all of us in this room have suppressed God's truth with a lie and worshiped the creation rather than the Creator. And because we've actively done that, Romans 1 tells us, we are without excuse before the God of the universe. So how do we make it to God? Again, a popular picture that's been painted of religion, even the scriptures in Psalm 24 paints this picture of how can we make it up God's holy mountain? And many folks in our day wanna see God at the top of a mountain, and there's a lot of different paths in order to make it up to him, different religions, we can all make it up there. But Christianity is unique in saying that no one can actually ascend God's holy hill. Like in Psalm 24, we all have stained, sinful hands. We don't have pure hearts. We've lifted up our soul to what it's faults. But the good news of Christianity is that God has actually come down the mountain to us to save us to make a way for us by coming to save us. We must take this message of love and hope and grace and truth to people that are in good news or in need of good news, people that are dying without hope. Carl F.H. Henry says it's only good news. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We have a responsibility to share this good news, that God has come to us. And the reason why we're here today is because that's what the early Christians did. That's what Jesus' disciples did. They were faithful to share. So that gospel came all the way to Jackson, Alabama, where I first heard it, and came all the way to us here in the south side of Birmingham where you are hearing it today. Early Christians believed they had the truth, And they believed this truth was good news. So that even when they were persecuted and told to stop sharing this good news, they said, we can't stop speaking about the things we've seen and heard in Jesus. The early Christians were faithful to share. But I think it's also good for us to remember the faithful early Christians, the first century Christians were faithful to live in light of this truth. They lived like this was good news. Again, even with all the common exa- examples that people will throw out from people that are skeptical of Christianity, of how harmful religion can be, I think it's helpful for us to remember what believing this good news drove the early Christians to do. I think it's helpful to think about that in contrast to the world that they were living in. So the first century world, the Greco-Roman world, It seemed religiously tolerant in many ways. Many people, again, kind of everybody had their own God that they could worship, but the practices of the culture were brutal. Again, infants were left exposed outside the city walls that weren't desired. Slavery was everywhere. Oppression of women. People didn't care about the poor or disabled. But Christians believe the message of Jesus in this first century world And they had a different approach to religion. Again, not all of them had their own God. They said there's one true and living God. It's Jesus. The early Christians, we know from the book of Acts, what was their movement called? It was called the way, right? Based on John 14, six, they were part of the way. They saw this exclusively as the way to God. But they were the ones who welcomed the outcast in their culture, They were the ones who went outside the city walls and got these babies left for dead and adopted them and made them their own. They were the ones who took up offerings in the first century for the slaves that were in their congregation and bought their fellow brothers and sisters out of slavery with the money that was collected. They were the ones that worked to overthrow the system of slavery through history. They're the ones that Jew and Gentile enemies saw themselves now as part of the same family. They worked for the value and dignity of women. They're the ones, when plagues came through, they stuck around to care for those who were dying at risk to themselves. Christians live this way because at the center of their faith was a God man who died sacrificially for his enemies and prayed for their forgiveness which is supposed to lead us as his people to sacrificial service and generosity and pursuit of peace even with our enemies. This is why when professing Christians perpetuate problems in the world, we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves and we act pridefully and unjustly, that it's doubly ugly, right? If we just held to a survival of the fittest worldview, Again, that makes sense, right? But the way of Jesus is different. The way that John 14, 6 should affect our lives is different than the world. The message of Jesus has within itself this remarkable power to explain and expel the divisive tendencies within the human heart. The only answer to our ultimate problem is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is offering a better, more satisfying way that leads to ultimate truth and to eternal life. The only way to make it to God, to the Father's house, is to daily look to Jesus in faith. And the way we respond to the Lord's word every week is by coming to the Lord's table. And as we think about the Lord's table, we remember that this is a reminder of God coming to us to make a way for us to dwell in our Father's house for eternity. In our Father's house, we are going to feast, the Scriptures tell us. The Lord's table is a foretaste of that feast to come, that we can have a foretaste of that today through faith, from turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus. If you are not actively turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, we would ask that you not come to this table, but as we say every week, we would love for you to come to us. We'd love for you to come to us and to talk to us more about what does it mean to know and follow Jesus? Is he really worth following? Is he really ultimate reality? But for those of you who are turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, know that it's good not just for us to hear this message, but to taste the goodness of God. remember that God's promises to us are not theoretical, but are as real as what we hold in our hands as we hold this bread and this cup. As we hold this bread, we remember that Jesus, the bread of life, had his body broken to the point of death so that he might offer you eternal life. As we take the cup, we remember that Jesus had his blood shed so that we might be cleansed and forgiven from all of our sins. For all the times we have worshiped God's creation rather than the creator. For all the times we failed to love our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus died so we might be cleansed, forgiven of all these things. The Apostle Paul tells us that this table is something that Christians will partake of together to proclaim what Jesus has done for us until we are in our Father's house in the new heavens and new earth. This is a foretaste of the feast to come. Let me pray, The Lord, give us grace to follow in the way of Jesus until that day. Father, we thank you that not only are you there, but you're not silent. That you have spoken to us through the prophets in many times, in many ways in the past. But in these last days, you have spoken to us through your Son, who is the heir of all things, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is ultimate reality. Father, we pray that you would keep us in the way of Jesus, keep us holding firmly to him through faith until that final day, until we are able to feast with Jesus in your house, in the new heavens, new earth. Father, work in our hearts by your spirit, Make us careful now to confess our sins to you, knowing that your promise in your word is that you are faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we do. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.